0: flying saucers, unidentified flying objects, UFOs. They're just a fact of modern life. In fact, if you check with friends or family members, chances are you'll find someone with a UFO story. Everyone's heard of the famous crash at Roswell in 1947. Some people know about the Foo Fighters during World War II. But there's a case that goes back far beyond that even before the Wright brothers ever flew a heavier than air craft. It happened in Aurora, Texas in 1897. April the 17th, 1897, dawned clear and cool in North Texas. When out of the South came a large silver cigar-shaped object dropping lower and lower as it approached the small hamlet of Aurora, located less than 20 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Swooping low over Aurora, the airship moved north toward the home of Judge J.S. Proctor, which was perched atop a flat Caliche Hill. There it struck a windmill and exploded, scattering debris and, by reports, one body. Or did it? Despite straight-faced coverage in the local newspapers of the time, the Aurora UFO crash has continued to generate controversy even till today. Here's what I know about it. In the spring of 1973, Bill Case was aviation writer for the now-defunct Dallas Times-Herald. He wrote a series of articles about the Aurora crash after being told the story by Hayden Hughes of the International UFO Bureau. Case immediately looked up the April 19th, 1897 article in his newspaper's microfilm library. The story stated, About six o'clock this morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship which had been sailing throughout the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer to the earth than before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order, for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually settling towards the earth. It sailed over the public square north part of town, collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill, and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank, and destroying the Judge's flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, the U.S. signal service officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, gives it his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his person, Evidently, the records of his travels are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered This ship is too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power It was built of an unknown metal resembling somewhat a mixture of Aluminum and silver and it must have weighed several tons the town today is full of people who are viewing the wreckage, gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. Signed, E. E. Hayden. Now, a similar story was published in the Fort Worth Register, but in this account there was no mention of the hieroglyphics, and as to the pilot, it simply stated, quote, The pilot, who was not an inhabitant of this world, was given Christian burial, In the Aurora Cemetery, end quote. Now, at this time, I was aviation aerospace writer for the Fort Worth Star Telegram back in 1973, and I decided to follow the Aurora story, partly because the Times Herald was considered the competition, and partly because the story intrigued me. Bill told me he had spoken to some of the old timers in Aurora and was convinced that something had indeed occurred there in 1897. I arranged to meet Case at the Aurora Cemetery, where he showed me what he said was the airship's pilot's grave. It was located in the south portion of the picturesque cemetery, which overlooks the rolling Wise County countryside. The grave was near a large live oak tree and was not full size. It was obviously the grave of a child or a very small man. At the head of the grave was a crude rock headstone. It appeared that half of the marker had broken off and was missing. On the remaining half was etched a design which resembled a large V lying on one side. Inside the V shape were three small circles. The entire design indeed resembled one end of a saucer shaped structure and the small circles appeared to be portholes. I was acquainted with some of the old cemeteries in the area and many containing the graves of early settlers, and the Maltese cross markers of confederate soldiers. This was indeed a very strange and intriguing marker. Bill told me he had used a metal detector on the grave site, and it indicated at least three large pieces of metal in the grave. One near the headstone, and the other two near the center of the grave. He was excited over this find and believed that if the pieces of metal could be exhumed, they might provide the proof of what actually occurred in 1897. I too was impressed with the idea of obtaining objective proof of what, until then, I considered just an old-timer's tall tale. While Case and UFO researchers set out to find someone to analyze whatever might be retrieved from the grave, I began researching the 1897 period, trying to put the Aurora story in perspective. What I discovered was astounding. The Aurora story was not an isolated incident. The microfilmed editions of area newspapers of the period were filled with various accounts of flying objects and even contacts with their crews. was the great airship mystery of 1896-97. It all started in the fall of 1896 when a large airship was seen in California. On the evening of November the 17th, 1896, several hundred residents of Sacramento watched a bright, radiant light undulate through the night sky for more than 30 minutes until it disappeared over the southwest horizon. Observers were able to discern a definite oblong shape behind the light and said that it was moving purposely against the prevailing wind. They also said the object appeared to have propellers, and a small cockpit or cabin attached. Some witnesses even claim to have heard voices drifting down from the object. Apparently the airship continued its southward journey as it was reported by residents of Oakland on the evening of November the 20th. This time, some observers claimed they saw more than one bright light one of them being red in color. Thousands witnessed the ship's subsequent passing over San Francisco. Public speculation over the craft's origin centered on the idea that some enterprising inventor was testing a new type of airship later called dirgibles. Similar to a French craft that had managed to fly a five-mile course at 13 miles per hour in 1884. This theory was given added credence when a San Francisco attorney named George D. Collins told newsman he represented the ship's builder an aerial navigation scholar formerly of Maine. However, after repeatedly promising and then failing to produce the inventor, Collins finally recanted his story and claimed he was misquoted in the press. With Collins's light waning in the media, the public relations torch was picked up by none other than a former attorney general of California, W. H. H. Hart, who publicly chastised Collins for lacking discretion in his accounts of the airship and then proceeded to claim that the ship was a secret weapon which would be used to destroy the city of Havana. The fact that the United States was not yet at war with Spanish Cuba did not seem to concern Hart. Sightings of the airship soon spread as far north as Tacoma, Washington, and the stories began to entail physical contact. On December the 2nd, 1896, two fishermen from a small town north of San Francisco reported that an airship had landed on a beach near them and that three crew members got out and carried the ship into nearby woods. As they approached the craft, the fishermen were met by an imposing figure who the other crewmen called Captain. This captain said his ship needed repairs and that while the fishermen would not be permitted to get close to the craft, they could observe from a distance. Never closer than 50 feet away, the pair later described the craft as cigar-shaped about 20 yards long, with great wings which folded against the fuselage. Becoming tired, the fishermen left for home before the craft departed. From California, sightings of the great airship began moving across the country. Thousands reported seeing the ship, or ships, and estimates of its speed ranged from five miles an hour to more than 200 miles an hour. The reported high speeds are noteworthy to this story. I recall reading an article in the 1897 papers in which prominent scientists asserted with great authority that humans could not survive speeds greater than 40 miles an hour. Therefore, considering that the fastest transportation of the day, the railroad train, crawled along at speeds no greater than 35 miles per hour. To claim something moved at greater than 100 miles per hour meant it was traveling faster than anything known at the time. By 1897, accounts of a flying airship had moved into Texas. Joseph E. Truthful Scully, a conductor for the Texas Pacific Railroad, told a reporter he had sighted the airship in Wood County near Hawkins, Texas. Soon, reports were coming in from all over the state, from Denison in the north to Beaumont on the coast, through small towns like Whitney, Forney, and Mansfield, all into Dallas. And these sightings were not all by railroad men. In Atlanta, near Texarkana, farmer Jim Nelson said his hair stood on end, the thing came so close. Another Atlanta man claimed to have spoken to the ship's three occupants, one of whom told him, we'll be in Greece day after tomorrow. The man added that the crew members handed out temperance tracts and sang, "Nearer, my God, to thee. It should be noted that in 1878, a Denison, Texas farmer named John Martin saw a dark disc high up in the sky. He told the Denison Daily News that it resembled a saucer, thus coining a term, that would not come into general use for almost a hundred years. C.L. McElhaney, and a dozen other residents of Stephenville, Texas, said a cigar-shaped craft carrying a pilot and an engineer landed in the Erath County in early 1897. About that same time, a family in Merkel, returning from church, discovered an anchor hooked to a fence. They claimed a stout rope led from the anchor to a large cigar-shaped craft hovering in midair. As the astounded family members watched, the ship flew away. But according to the news article, the anchor was on public display in Merkel for several days. One of the oddest stories came from the April edition of the Fort Worth Register. The article said Fort Worth Railroad Track Inspector Patrick Burns who had a reputation as a, quote, truthful man, end quote, had his own close encounter. According to Burns, he was inspecting track west of Fort Worth near the town of Putnam. As evening approached, he was about to turn around and return to the city when he saw a bright light ahead. He found a large silver cigar-shaped object sitting on the ground surrounded by a crew of men clad in blue uniforms. Burns, too, spoke of a captain of the ship who said the craft was loaded with several tons of dynamite, which was to be used to bomb the Spanish Navy. Burns returned home to Fort Worth and recounted his tale to the newspaper, which stated it hardly cares to repeat it. Here again is mention of hostilities with Cuba, Yet the Spanish-American War did not begin until well after the mysterious destruction of the battleship Maine on February the 15th, 1898. As Fort Worth Star-Telegram writer Jerry Flemons correctly deduced after recounting Burns's experience, quote, If a ruler is placed on a map, Aurora lies almost in a straight line between the Putnam Siding and the Ozarks. By 6 a.m., the cigar could have been over Aurora just in time to destroy Judge Proctor's flower garden There were hoaxes associated with the flap In the 1960s an aging railroad telegrapher confessed that the entire airship story was just a joke concocted by railroad men in Iowa He said when the joke spread to Texas truthful Scully was selected to initiate the tale Yet hoaxes could not account for all of the sightings. It's abundantly clear that something was flying through the air in 1897, and if that something was a man-made dirigible, no one ever has come forward to take credit for it. In fact, the first recorded dirigible flight in the United States was in 1904 when Thomas Baldwin's California era, lifted off from Oakland, California. It was also clear that the great airship mystery did not end in Aurora. Reports of the craft continued for days after the reported crash. Skeptic and author Philip Klass once wrote, During a five-day period between April the 15th and April the 19th, 1897, the Dallas Morning News reported sightings from 21 different towns in Texas, During the next nine days, the Houston Post carried nine others. In fact, two days after the reported Aurora crash came what may have been the first recorded UFO incident involving a cow. An edition of the St. Louis Globe Democrat stated that on the night of April the 19th, 1897, former Alexander Hamilton reported that a mysterious airship had descended on his farm near Yates Center, and after pointing a powerful spotlight toward the ground, abducted one of his cows with a rope. Of the great airship mystery, author Paris Flamon wrote, Despite all the errors deriving from intent, ignorance, and overexcitement, nothing altered the fact that tens of thousands of people had viewed the light, or lamp, or the object, or even specific craft. Most revelant was that a considerable percentage of the often detailed accounts originated with highly reputable and responsible individuals. Lights and flying objects are one thing, but how does one explain small uniformed crewmen, anchors and propellers? One possible explanation was offered by John Spencer of the British UFO Research Association. He said, If some of the airships were of extraterrestrial origin, then it would confirm the theory of cultural tracking, which suggests that many of the devices of the aliens are made to look very similar to the technology of Earth at the time. This was his explanation, as printed in his UFO encyclopedia. Others, of course, take a different view. Ardent UFO debunker class After reviewing reports of the airship concluded, the events demonstrate that when the public has been conditioned by the news media to believe that there are strange objects in the sky, many people report having seen such objects, even when the objects do not really exist. Now, while Class's thesis undoubtedly is true, to a certain extent, does not hold up when considering the slow transportation and communication of 1897 radio was non-existent, and newspapers took days, even weeks, to be delivered. Many of the airship witnesses in small Texas towns could not have heard of the other far-flung sightings. After reviewing the airship literature, I could not draw any firm conclusion, so I began to interview the people in Aurora. The population of the Little Hamlet in 1973 was less than 400 persons. They seemed almost evenly divided in their beliefs concerning the crash. Half claimed it really happened, while the other half claimed that it was merely a hoax perpetrated by Hayden, a literate man who was a stringer for local newspapers and had previously written several satirical pieces. I began to realize that everyone had their own opinion their own mindset if you will which was based on which particular old-timer one chose to believe but while the old-timers around Aurora were hesitant to talk about the spaceship crash their descendants were not so close mouthed. I've talked to many people in Wise County who will quietly say oh yes I've heard about this for years through the family or whatever and I've even gotten some to speak for the camera.
1: Well, I grew up around here and we moved out here in the late fifties and I've been here for a long time. And When I was a kid we used to go up and play up around Aurora. Some friends of mine, there's the ballpark up there and some other areas we used to go out and play around there and there's some older men that talked about where an old spaceship had crashed. Some people believe it happened. Some of the older ones you talk to would say, well, yeah, but you know, there really wasn't anything that that really did happen. And then some of the younger ones that will tell you that, well, yeah, something did happen. My father was there. My grandfather was there, and saw the wreckage or saw what was a wreckage of something. Um, all of them got little pieces of metal at one time, and it's it's different. It's a you know, it's a little alloy-looking metal that's soft to the touch, but nobody can explain what it is.
2: Well, we all grew up. I grew up in in Wise County over there by Aurora, the old cemetery. Over there, my grandpa, actually it was my great-grandpa, my grandpa was just a young boy back then, I guess. And he said it was around dusk or about dark, and back then there wasn't, you know, any kind of air traffic or anything like that, you know. But he said that there was just a real big, just a boom, you know, something hit the ground, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty hard. They got Joe Smith, that was my great-grandpa, and he, he loaded up all the kids and stuff, like a circus coming town. you know, he didn't know what it was. So they all loaded up and they went down the road there, and uh, other guys, other people were out gathering around too because they actually seen whatever it was, you know, it hit, when it hit. And it mowed over some trees and everything right there by the cemetery. And as far as what he said he saw was just a bunch of debris. Within, I think he said within, oh, just maybe a matter of four or five hours that uh, every law enforcement agency that was around, this this neck of the woods up here was there. Real quick, like. Etta Pegues
0: was a stringer for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in 1973 and hence a major source for the news media regarding the crash. It's all a hoax, she said flatly. I have talked to people who were alive then, and they all said Judge Proctor had no windmill. However, Peggy's later published a book entitled Aurora, Texas, The Town That Might Have Been. In her book is an illustration depicting a saucer-shaped spaceship aiming down at a windmill. A poetic license, she snorted, when asked about the drawing. Her primary source of information was Robbie Hanson. Robbie Reynolds Hanson said, quote, They're still trying to bring up the hoax about the spaceship, end quote. She was 12 years old on the day of the crash. Her family lived outside of town, and no one knew anything about it until a man rode by several days later and told the family the story. Well, i remember my father remarked that the judge really outdid himself that time. Robbie Hanson told me, Wise County Historical Commission Chairwoman Rosalie Gregg has consistently decried the Aurora story as a hoax. Her primary source of information was Oedipigese. Wayman Reese, who lived 73 of his 83 years in Aurora, told a Dallas reporter, "'Wasn't a thing to it. Never was. Them old men, all they had to do was sit around, whittle and joke. They all knew better. Nobody here believed that stuff.' Reese had no direct knowledge of the crash and simply disbelieved the old timers who spoke of it. Now, Brawley and Etta Oates bought Judge Proctor's property in 1945 and lived
1: there for years. Gentlemen who had a little self-service filling station in Rome, where we, I mean, in Aurora, right there in Aurora, Mr. Oates, we used to go by, and he always had a little box that was supposedly the metal that came off the Aurora spaceman spaceship, and he. Would give it to us kids, and I kept a little piece of it for years and years and years.
0: Brawley died about the time the 1973 publicity about Aurora broke. I heard the story for years, said Mrs. Oates, adding, nothing grew for years in that one spot in the field where that spaceship is supposed to have
1: hit. Proctor was kind of known as, as a, a prankster of sorts at times, and he's given some credit for a lot of this. And, and Mr. Oates was too. And oh, a family that lives in Rome now that used to live in Aurora told me said, "Well, that was just something on a rainy day." They were in Aurora used to be a pretty good sized town, and had a lot of had several saloons and stores and all kinds of things. And they, uh, they kind of uh, uh, his opinion was that Oates and Proctor got together and trumped the story up along with some others, and they started the whole thing.
0: Those family all suffered serious health problems, including cyst and goiters, which they told me were caused by drinking water from the old well where the crash occurred. I've been told it's radioactive, Mrs. Oates confided to me. Surveying the crash site atop a flat hill just north of Texas Highway 114, I was struck by a circular area that was clearly different from the surrounding countryside. It was almost bare, and what vegetation was there appeared stunted but there was no proof that anything had crashed. So I decided to track down a primary source. By 1973, as I recall, there were only three people still living who may have had direct knowledge of the crash. One was Robbie Benson, who admitted she had no personal knowledge. Another living witness was Mary Evans, who was then almost 92 years old. She told me, i was only 15 at the time and had all but forgotten that incident until it appeared in the papers recently we were living in aurora at the time but my mother and father wouldn't let me go with them when they went up to the crash site at judge proctor's well when they returned home they told me how the airship had exploded the pilot was torn up and killed in the crash the men of the town who gathered his remains said he was a small man and they buried him that same day in the Aurora Cemetery. That crash certainly caused a lot of excitement. Many people were frightened. They didn't know what to expect. That was years before we had any regular airplanes or other kinds of airships. Of these two elderly women, neither had any direct knowledge, and one said it happened because her parents told her about it, while the other said it was a hoax because that's what her father said. Pro, con, you could take your pick. But then there was Charlie C. Stevens. He was 83 in 1973. He told me he had always declined to talk to reporters about the crash because he didn't want to get involved. And finally, after some neighborly conversation, Charlie loosened up and gave this account. As a young boy less than 10 years old, He was with his father putting some cattle out to pasture on the morning of April the 19th, 1897, when the pair saw a cigar-shaped object with a bright light pass overhead. The craft was very low and moved straight ahead toward Aurora, which was about three miles to the north. The pair then heard what seemed to be an explosion and a fire lit up the northern sky for several minutes. I wanted to go immediately and see what had happened. Charlie recalled, but my daddy said we had to finish the chores.
1: Well, Charlie, Charlie's been known to be a pretty, pretty much a man of his word. You know, he's not hasn't been considered to be a, a prankster or a hoaxer or anything like that. So, If
0: Stevens was concocting a story, it seemed more likely he would have said that he and his father raced to the scene and given a grand account of the damage. Instead, Stevens said his father rode a horse into town the next day. Returning to the family farm, he described a mass of torn metal and burned rubble. He made no mention of the pilot. According to the contemporary accounts, the pilot was buried the same day as the crash. So when Stephen's father was in town, there was no body to view. He declined to talk about anything he had not personally seen.
1: Kind of a time where, you know, you're a man of your word 100 percent and, you know, anything outside of it, if you back then, if you didn't see it, it didn't happen. But the elder
0: Stevens had no trouble talking about the crash. During the years I was growing up, he told me the story many times, recalled Stevens, adding he was almost twenty years old before he heard about the dead pilot. Detractors of the crash story have argued that it could not have happened because Judge Proctor had no windmill. Stevens responded to this charge by stating, Well, it wasn't a windmill. It was a wooden windlass built over the well about 18 feet high used to haul up the sump, but it was destroyed. Other arguments against the crash were that T.J. Weems of the newspaper accounts was only the town blacksmith. Stevens agreed with this, but said Weems had been in the Army Signal Service and did have an interest and a knowledge of astronomy. A chart of the Masonic Cemetery showed no unidentified graves. However, a Mrs. Isla Finlayson, a resident of nearby Rome, who cared for the cemetery in the 1960s and 70s, said many people were buried without headstones and that early maps did not list all the burials. Oh, there are a lot of people out there we don't know about, she told a reporter. So on it went. For every claim, there was a counterclaim. All I was left with was one witness, Stevens, some bits of metal gathered from the crash site and the grave, hardly convincing evidence. But then the story took an intriguing twist. After analyzing some of the metal from the Aurora crash site, physicist Dr. Tom Gray of the University of North Texas in Denton stated in a news release that at least one fragment may require more investigation. The piece was determined to contain 75% iron and 25% zinc with a few trace elements. The most intriguing aspect of the fragment was that although it was made up primarily of iron, it displayed no magnetic properties. While the fragments were being studied, Bill Case had written further on the Aurora story and had generated interest from the International UFO Bureau. They were excited. We are more convinced than ever that a UFO crashed here and the pilot was killed and buried in this cemetery. Our attorneys are already checking to learn how we might have the body exhumed, Hughes said. I too became excited. An exhumation might settle the matter once and for all, but it was not to be. Despite the fact that no legal action had been taken to seek an exhumation, several Aurora residents, including several cemetery directors, stood guard at the cemetery to prevent any unauthorized digging and threaten a lawsuit against anyone who tried. "'Well, they're afraid you'll dig up Grandma,' explained Decatur attorney Bill Nobles. "'You see, there was a spotted fever epidemic back in those days, and dozens of Aurorans died.'" They were dying so fast they were quickly buried, many without markers. They don't want to revive the disease h r Pig Idell, then Aurora City Marshal, said he rode shotgun on the cemetery for about two weeks to prevent any digging. Oh, we didn't call out the National Guard. Idell recalled there was me, the sheriff, a couple of deputies. That was enough. The night after the patrols stopped. The strange headstone was stolen. More inexplicable was the fate of the metal in the grave. A few months after the exhumation furor had died away, Bill Case called me and wanted me to meet him in the Aurora Cemetery. They took it away, he said cryptically. Bill knelt down and showed me three small holes which had been drilled in the exact locations of the metal. ''Well, then who do you think did this?'' I asked. Bill looked me in the eye and replied, ''The government.'' A year later, Bill Case died. With the headstone and the grave metal missing, an exhumation impossible, and even the old-timers squabbling over the truth of the crash... Excitement over the Aurora story quickly faded. A lot of people ask me, well, you know, if they're uh, extraterrestrials, why don't they just land and say, you know, we come in peace, hello? Well, I think here's the answer to the question. In the same Dallas Morning News uh, uh, edition that carries the Aurora spaceship uh, story, we have a uh, correspondent writing from Granbury, Texas, April the 17th. Newt Grisham last night at 9.30 o'clock while drilling the Riddle Rifles discovered that mysterious flying jenny of which we've heard so much. Newt is a very warsome young man being a populist, but he could not stand the sight of the air machine, and he ordered the company to open fire on the object, which it did, and the whole town was soon aroused. Holy cow. What is it? I don't know. Shoot at it. That, uh, I think, may explain why they haven't sat down and, and made contact. Another story in the same Dallas Morning News edition comes from uh, Wortham uh, in Freestone County, Texas. And it says that uh, Captain John A. Lilly, a prominent and reliable citizen of this place, a Mexican war veteran, claims he saw the mysterious airship last night about 830. He said it was going straight up. Hmm. That kind of leaves out a meteor. I think the proof is in this Dallas Morning News page. There are 16 stories on this page coming from correspondence ranging as far north as Oklahoma, as far south as almost to Austin. Every single one of these 16 stories is talking about the mysterious airship, the craft that they see sailing through the airs at incredible uh, speeds, okay? So the whole idea that the Aurora story, which is right here, is simply a hoax, does not hold up. Some of these stories even carry accounts of having conversations with the spaceship crew that has landed, okay? And the stories vary. One says we're a secret experiment uh, from a, a laboratory in New York State. Another one says we come from a secret society living at the North Pole. Another one says, uh, well, we're on a secret mission to bomb Havana. Uh, and yet the commonality between all these stories is don't tell anyone you've seen us. But, of course, being human, <laughs> they run right into town and immediately say, guess what I saw? In recent years, uh, more events have taken place that tend to confirm the story of the Aurora spaceship crash. In 2013, I participated with the TV series UFO Hunters, and uh, using ground-penetrating radar, they found that, contrary to the debunkers who said it was a hoax and nothing happened, there is a short grave at the gravesite. They can tell this by the disturbance of the ground levels uh, under the grass. Another argument against the uh, Aurora spaceship crash story is that Judge Proctor did not have a windmill. Technically, this might be correct, but he had a windlass. He had a derrick, a tower, uh, that was used for the sump, for his pump, did not have a windmill on top of it, apparently, by by some accounts. But it was a derrick there, there was a tower. We know this now, this has been proven because we found the footing for the derrick at the location of the wellhouse. To me, one of the most convincing things of all is the strange beads of molted aluminum that has been found at the crash site. In fact, some of them embedded in nearby trees and rocks. This indicates that there was a tremendous explosion at some point at that location. And yet Raleigh Oates, who I interviewed back in the 70s, said he bought the place uh, before World War II in the late 30s, I believe, and that there had been no big explosion there. So whatever happened there happened before the 1930s. Uh, Also, the uh, metal content and makeup of this aluminum, uh, while it was aluminum, is not the same as modern aluminum aluminum and i even did some checking on the history of aluminum and aluminum had only been developed uh, in the past maybe 10 years prior to 1897 and at that time it was so rare that it was actually cost more than gold so the idea that somebody would have faked something using aluminum at that time is uh, uh nearly impossible so all this combined, I think, shows us that something actually crashed in Aurora in 1897. This was six years before the Wright brothers flew. And I think this is the smoking gun of the UFO issue. It's real. They're here. Now all we have to do is figure out what they want. Since it seems obvious that we are being visited by non-humans and that they're flying around in our skies. Uh, I would want to allay any fears that we're about to be invaded. Because uh, if you go back and look in your history, you'll find that all the way back to the Bible with Ezekiel, the fiery wheel in the sky, the Egyptians and their flying boats, the Chinese and their flying dragons, the Aborigines and their flying gods, the Dogon tribe in Africa that knew all about the star Sirius and, and planets around it. I think we find that we have been visited for a millennium. Okay, probably before our own written history. Now, if the object was to attack the Earth, burn our cities, and kill us, they could have done that long before now. So, you know, why wait till we have our own space technology and laser weapons and things like this, uh, you know, when they could have attacked us when all we had to defend ourselves with was uh, uh, swords and spears. So, uh, whatever's going on, uh, I don't think that we need to panic the context of the great airship mystery, the small grave containing significant bits of metal, the puzzling fragment, the deformities of the Oates family, and the recollection of Charlie Stevens. And if the story was merely a hoax, why would anyone use sophisticated equipment to surreptitiously remove metal from the small grave? To compound the puzzle, years later, my wife was teaching school in the area and was told in all seriousness by Pig Idell's son, James, that his grandfather had helped bury the pilot. The son also said his father knew who took the headstone and said he could do nothing about it. This indicated it was some sort of official secrecy. So today, the Aurora spaceman while unproven in scientific circles, continues to sail through the skies of our imaginations. The Aurora crash story underscores the problems and the issues involved in seeking the truth of the UFOs. The problem of questionable witnesses on all sides is magnified by what appears to be official complicity in the maddening lack of evidence. What do you think, Levi? Do you think that there's UFOs up there? Don't know. Just like everybody else. Yeah, just like everybody else. (laughs) Just don't know.